of the many highlights of being a part of the, the fairly new mission family that is Alliance Global Service, you heard the guys say, uh, we would love for each branch church, there's 23 branch churches, to send out uh, at least one full-time missionary. Ah, we're, we're past that. We've already sent out multiples, uh, and we rejoice in that, and we get to support many others. And that's a tremendous answer to prayer. You see, this idea is that God is at work, and for some reason he has chosen to use broken people to proclaim his great name to other broken people. Do we have it all figured out? No. Is there much to learn? Absolutely. Trust me. I learn this daily. It's called marriage. She's not here. I can't get yelled at for that. But we have much to learn. And as we think about the end, as we continue on our study of Revelation, it should draw us to a place of dependence on the Lord. When we think of Revelation, I I was trying to think of how do you jump back into this series in a way that kind of makes sense. And I heard a story told uh, on my way to the night market with my family and uh, another couple from Lebanon. And uh, my new friend from Lebanon said, he looked at me and he said, so have you heard the story about a couple that uh, were, were celebrating their 25th anniversary? And I said, no, but we're getting there. We're celebrating our 15th this year. And he said, oh, that's great. You know, and they were traveling through Thailand celebrating their 30th. And we had a great chat. And he said, well, there was this couple that for their 25th anniversary, the the wonderful groom took his bride to China to visit China. And they just thought that was the most amazing thing. And and he said, well, then I asked the man, well, now you've been married 50 years. And he said, yeah, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. And he said, well, what are you going to do to top the 25th where you took her to China? And his response was perfect. He said, well, I'm going to go pick her up. And you see, when we think, some of you, you'll get there. You'll get there. Just keep thinking about it for a second. Sometimes when we think about the book of Revelation, we think about Jesus who's already been here, and then he left us. And now we're in sort of this unknown state where we're trying to figure out what to make of this world, just waiting for him to come back and figure out everything. And we're in this state where we sometimes we act like we've been left out on our own to kind of just wade through the water until Christ returns. And that's how we treat following Jesus. But that's not at all what the message of Revelation is about. And it's not at all what we're going to discover from the scriptures this morning that we began a couple weeks ago and Pastor Harris continued last week that is the point of revelation. He has not left us alone. In fact, right before he ascended to heaven, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He tells us at the Great Commission, I am with you always to the ends of time. And so we've got to keep that in mind as we think about this book of Revelation. Uh, The very word revelation does not mean hidden secrets, does it? Now, I know you read Revelation and you think it's all very confusing. It is, trust me. Uh, I was telling someone before the service, the more I study, the more I realize we don't understand everything that's going on in this story. But we get the big idea. And that's what I want us to focus on as we process through. So in your Bibles today, uh, I'm going to read to you just a couple of passages to give us perspective. And my prayer is that you study these more in depth. I'm going to take a few minutes and walk us through some big ideas and some big points, and I've left you some notes to help you with that. 
But this is not an exhaustive study of the book of Revelation or even the last five chapters. This is hopefully an introduction for you to go deeper. And it's an invitation for you to consider one question. God, what might you have me do now? And that's the question I want us to start with. And it's the question I want us to finish with. Revelation 17. Actually, we're going to start in Revelation 18. Verse 11 says this. And this gives you a perspective of what the world can be like when our focus is off. Verse 11, the merchants of earth will weep and mourn over her, over Babylon, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. All these different things. They will say the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. You see, earlier we had learned that Babylon was this great monster, this great civilization called a prostitute. And you can see in the table in the back of your notes different pictures of what Babylon was like. So I encourage you, we won't spend much time going through them now. But all these different things. But Babylon was a civilization that promoted a certain way of life that was antithetical to what God had. And now, as it has fallen, we're seeing that all of the world is missing the comforts and the luxuries of seeking after self. And then you compare that to what we find in the end of Revelation chapter 21, starting with verse 22. I didn't see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the lamp is and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Not those who do what is shameful and deceitful. In other words, not those who followed the ways of Babylon. Lord, as we look into your word today, would you open our hearts? Would you teach us and would you guide us as to how we should respond in these dark days that many believe truly are the end of days. God, help us to be your light in this dark world. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, shortly after I moved here in 2000, I moved here before this, but in about 2008, in January, uh, I I was over across the street at Pacific Coffee, uh, having a cup of coffee, and I saw this uh, for sale. You know, Pacific Coffee sells Time magazine. And I thought it was pretty interesting because, one, it was a very creative look at the skylines of three different cities. Three, or second, I thought it was interesting because of connecting three names of three cities together, Nylon Kong. And so I bought that magazine. I've since lost it, so I had to go resubscribe to the digital version of Time so that I could find the article and remember exactly what it says so I could re- represent it properly today. But in this article, it talked about 
what it is like for these three prosperous cities at the time and how they have redefined the global economy. Back in 2008, this word globalization was a big word. Everybody wanted to talk about globalization. Fiber optic cables were going across the seafloor and what an amazing thing. And that had happened years before. But we were more connected than we'd ever been. And these cities represented great hope for all that was going right in the world. And some of the things that Time magazine highlighted were this, financial abundance. They said it's great that people can afford to live in such an expensive city as Hong Kong. That shows wealth and abundance. And that was deemed as a positive thing. Not that wealth and abundance are bad. They said these cities influence the cultures around them and they are cultural influencers. Uh, And Hong Kong is trying to catch up to its older brother and sister, uh, New York and London, uh, because we're not quite there culturally is what they were saying, but still influential in culture and in thought. They said there's great recognition and great influence in the international community because of the wealth, because of the status, and because people are proud of what these cities have become. Some of the smartest people in the world are drawn to such cities as New York and London and Hong Kong because smart people draw smart people and successful people draw successful people unto themselves. And these are positive things. And they said that all three of these cities has also shown great abilities to adapt to the times and and work hard to shape society around it. And these were all seen as positives. And in many ways, these were positive things. There's just one problem, and it's called August of 2008. Does anybody remember what happened in August through October of 2008? Specifically in New York City? The market crashed. We overspeculated on so many loans that America broke, literally to the tune of over 900 billion US dollars. This great New York representative of everything that is good in the world showed itself to be cheating people, showed itself to be taking shortcuts to please themselves without thinking of the greater good. And the world suffered because of the economic influence of one of these cities. And the interesting thing is we've seen how it can have a negative impact when our idols become something like this newspaper or this news magazine. What do I mean by that? Well, wealth inherently is not a bad thing. God can give people wealth that they can use to support and love and bless those around them in healthy, positive ways. We need healthy, wealthy people desperately in our world. We are desperately in need of them. But it can also be used as a means of oppression. Over the past years, you've heard about the one percenters uh, that, have all, that have a good chunk of the wealth and how we wish that more of that could be distributed equally. I'm not promoting communism, but we long for people that are generous. And we certainly have met many that are over the years. But wealth can be used to push people down rather than bring people out of darkness. And that's what had happened in 2008. Culture can be used as a way to elevate self over God. You know, atheism is is rampant in the world and it's because there's no right and wrongs anymore. What is right for you isn't necessarily what is wrong for me and that's what culture teaches and that winds its way into schools and it's what is taught that we have to be tolerant of everyone as long as they don't offend us. 
But then we get behind closed doors, we complain and we do these other things. And so culture has become this God in and of itself where we have to be accepting of everyone except Christians or except this group or except. And so there's always these absolute exceptions. And influence and power and leadership, which are positive things and can be used for wonderfully for good, can also be used to make us think that we've got all we need right now. Why would we have any need for God? And we begin to question what point. I'm comfortable. We like that word comfort and we want to be comfortable. And that, again, these are not bad things in and of themselves, but we can elevate comfort over looking after widows and orphans and not being stained by the ways of the world. That's the end of James chapter one. And we make our comforts ahead of realizing that there are so many suffering that we forget about them. And then we place things like intelligence and self-sufficiency, our reason at the highest pinnacle. Uh, Hong Kong is known to be arguably the most stressful place in all the world to live for children. We laugh, but think about what we've done to our children. Why are gastrointestinal problems and ulcers more prevalent in this society than in countries 10 times our size? Because we have made a God out of academics. Now, please, don't misunderstand me. I am not going to tell your children, stop studying and just wing it. That is not my point. But somewhere along the line, we have forsaken our first love. Our first love is the person of Jesus Christ and in him glorified in every area of life. In so doing, he models how we prioritize our lives. If there's wealth, how do we use that wealth to honor him? If there's influence, how do we use that influence to honor him? If there's success, how does that use to shape other lives for the glory of God? If there's intelligence, how do we use those brains? Hong Kong is also, statistically speaking, the smartest city in the world or one of them by an IQ standard. How do we use all this intelligence we've got to glorify God and to honor him with what we've gotten, what he's given us? Remember what we started with in our call to worship this morning? Using our gifts as a spiritual act of worship using our gifts to show people the greatness that is God. You see, we long for a city that is not based on elevating humanity, but it's based on elevating the greatness of God. And we mustn't lose sight of that. So when we think about revelation, we're not just thinking about it in terms of how broken our world is, Because when it's applied rightly, a study of Revelation helps us understand the times. It helps us know, as you'll see on the next slide, what was referring to when we heard about Babylon. First, Babylon throughout the scriptures was not noted as a great place uh, in terms of being faithful to God. It had its moments. it's certainly for a while Nebuchadnezzar followed uh, what Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's example led, and there was some prosperity there. But overall, Babylon throughout the scriptures is seen as one, a place the world looks at as prosperous. In other words, the world wants to be like this, but in the eyes of God, it it, it is evil. Okay, so that's throughout the scriptures when Babylon is referred to, that is how it's usually referred to. So you need to understand that as John, the writer, gives us this picture of the beast, the prostitute of Babylon. 
And then also we need to understand that John was living during the Roman Empire. Whether he wrote this in the mid-60s AD, roughly 30 years after Jesus died, or in the mid-90s AD, roughly 60 years after Jesus died, in either case, Rome is at a turning point. Its power is being utilized in new ways. The polytheism, the worship of many gods, has now turned into a persecution of those that are followers of the way. What do I mean by that? Well, it wasn't until the middle of Acts that Christians are called Christians. Before then, they were called followers of the way. And as they grew in number and grew in influence, Throughout all of Rome, think of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and how God used him. Well, there is only one God and his name is Caesar, except for the fact that they worshipped all the planets. That was different. That was okay. Somehow it worked. Polytheism at its best. And when they put those together, there was no room for the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That didn't fit in Roman thought, in Roman reason, and in Roman polytheism, many gods. And so Rome began persecuting Christians at an astounding rate, eventually burning down the city of Jerusalem and everything within it. And so we see that, and it was a society known for elevating these things over God. They had no room for God. So when you get to Revelation chapter 21 and we're introduced to a new Jerusalem, I kept trying to come up with a good definition and finally I cheated and in your notes you'll see that this is from the Baker Handbook. But I love what the writer says, the community of Christ and his people. The new Jerusalem isn't just a home for God. You get that? Did you get what Jesus is is? The, the lamb is referring to when last week Pastor Ayers told us that he's coming back for his bride, his pure and spotless bride. He's bringing us home to walk and live with him for how long? Forever. That should excite us and it should charge us with a great mission. So I want to finish up this definition. But the community of Christ and his people, which will appear in its perfection only when this age has come to an end. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard me say it before and I'll say it again. For those that follow Jesus Christ, those that would believe on Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the only way to live and have been transformed by Him, this is the closest thing to hell we will ever see. For those that have turned away from Jesus or have not yet believed on Him, this is as good as it gets. Before we go further, let me ask you this. Which camp would you want to be in? a camp where civilization is, is growing ever more tense with itself. We're putting missiles in strategic places to exert power here. We're electing officials that shoot their mouths off, hoping that they'll get us to where we think we need to be. We're doing all these things thinking that somehow we've got it figured out. And for us as Christ followers, we're living in the tension of the kingdom of God given to us through Jesus Christ, but he hasn't yet returned and brought us back to the new Jerusalem. So how do we deal with that? Well, the simple fact, and here's the chart. You can look at this later, but it compares these two that we'll talk about today without going into all that time. But it's meant, as we go through this, it's meant to reveal truth, not to distort it. 
If God wanted us to understand exactly how it's all going to work and make our brains explode, he would have given us dates, times, and exactly what if it looks like, what it will look like. But what he did instead was he painted a picture for John. Most believe John that wrote the book of Revelation was the beloved disciple, the same man that wrote the gospel of John. Tradition seems to indicate also that Revelation, depending on who you talk to, was written before he wrote his gospel. So after he'd been sentenced to uh, exile in Patmos, a new emperor was brought into Rome. That guy brought John out of Patmos. And it's at that point that some suspect that John finally got around to writing his gospel. And it's written with that in mind. But Revelation was meant to give people a picture of who God is and what he's doing. But in John's mind, it was also very much with Rome in mind. Because for John, that was what was right in front of him. And so we have to be able to interpret the culture around us as we wrestle with Revelation, just as John did. No doubt when John thought about the monster and the beast in Revelation 17 and 18, he was thinking Rome. Rome was anti-God in every way. Can anybody think of someone we might picture as anti-God in every way today? Any group that might be rising in prominence throughout the world? ISIS or ISIL or however you say it. Not so long ago during World War II, another group would have seemed very similar to this the Nazis. We have seen these patterns time and again, and God has prepared us and said, this is happening, and I know it's happening, and it calls for a mind with wisdom. It is easy for me to look around this world, to read the newspaper and think all that is going wrong There's a seemingly good chance that my country might elect the most unlikely of presidents that I can't see how would do good for our country. I'm not using names, but you can figure it out if you know where I'm from. Okay. (laughs) There's that too. In any case, I digress. It calls for much wisdom with how we live in the world God has placed us and how we interpret the times. Because here's the thing. Some of you are joining with us on our reading through the Bible in a year and you're working your way through one of the toughest books to understand in all of the Bible and that's the book of Job. And the big answer at the end of the book of Job of why is there suffering? And the answer is, I am God. And that doesn't always make us feel good. But the answer for Job throughout that was that he must live with integrity and light and wisdom even when he doesn't understand what is going on around him. And God looked at him and said, did you put all this together? And Job couldn't say yes. For us today, we can easily act entitled. Like it's not fair that all of these things are happened. But... John was astonished when he saw what was happening in John in Revelation 17 and 18. He was astonished and we're told that the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations, the worst of the worst of the earth. Yet people were following, people were reveling in her sin and people were joining with her in that. That's why the scripture reading I read you at the beginning of today's message said that the rest of the world was crying 
out, woe is us because we've lost our wealth, our comfort, our luxury. Why are we astonished? The angel asks John when back in Revelation 13, we told you this was going to happen. We told you suffering would come. We told you people would not seek God. They would seek out for a time false gods. And the message when the angel asks this is, is one of, why are you surprised? Do you somehow think that God isn't sovereign? That even in the midst of this, that God can't work out a solution? John, after all you've seen, from likely the time you were between 14 and 17, you walked with Jesus. Michael Card, a guy we heard speak two weeks ago, uh, surmises that John might have even been a cousin of Jesus. Not John the Baptist, but another John being the cousin of Jesus. I don't know about that. I haven't studied it well enough. But in any case, now the angel's saying, do you not remember what's already happened? God is sovereign and God is in control. There's no reason to be perplexed. You might not see how all this comes together, but you can rest on the rock that is Jesus Christ and on his foundation. And that's why the last five chapters of Revelation are written like they are. They keep pointing us to the lamb instead of the things of this earth. They will say the fruit you longed for is gone. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. And what you can see as you read these chapters, there's misplaced priorities. And see if we as a society today can relate to any of these. I didn't put them on the screen, so you'll have to listen. First, idolatry. Well, let me define idolatry in 21st century terms. Any place, object, or state of being that elevates man or uh, an object over God. We can worship anything if we try. Just think about some of the things. In, in the Old Testament, they worshipped poles. They were called Asherah poles. And Solomon kept marrying people and putting up more Asherah poles, and, and they would worship these poles. Uh, some of us might wrestle with or know people that wrestle with worshiping something as simple as money. I don't have enough money. I need more. And that needs to control every area of my life. Some of us might worship many other things that can get in the way and distract us from following God with all of our lives. Anything that distracts us from that is idolatry. It's that simple. The second one you'll notice that they worshipped was this idea of immorality. There were no reasons for moral behavior anymore. Whatever you saw fit to do, that is good for you. Does that sound familiar today? We're redefining marriage. We're redefining relationships. We're redefining gender. We're redefining all of these different things and saying it's okay. We should be comfortable with that. Well, the prostitute Babylon was comfortable with that, but the Lamb of God was not and never will be. So we have to be careful how we interpret the times of a society that worships immorality and says it's okay. Says, don't worry about me. You just do your own thing and you let me do mine and me be myself. Babylon also led the world in leading 
a pursuit of luxury. Well, I think we're pretty good at that here in Hong Kong. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying having nice things is wrong. Please don't misunderstand. But when the pursuit of nice things elevates our pursuit of God, or it actually lowers our pursuit of God and elevates our pursuit of Gucci or Louis Vuitton or really fancy cars or Apple products, whichever of those it might be. I'm speaking to myself on the last one. It takes our mind off what Paul says, seek whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is right, think on these things. Instead, we've thought on what we don't have or what we need. Do we really need all the things we say we need? Probably not. But yet we pursue them and that takes our attention off of the land. Not so different from Babylon. Not so different from Rome. And then finally, and we're seeing a rise in this again and it's becoming more and more troubling and harder and harder to ignore we're seeing an increase, as was promised, in persecution. It is becoming more and more dangerous to, become a, to be a Christian. I love that my profession, the invitation God placed in my life to get up in front of people and tell them about the great news of Jesus Christ is what I get to do. And I get to do that in a place where right now it's safe. As I look at the influences of our northern neighbors, who knows how long I will have that freedom here. We're not guaranteed that. We're guaranteed that in the last days, Christians will not be revered, respected, or treated well. They will be hunted. Because people won't understand why would you love others? Why would you love a God who would come down as a servant? That doesn't make sense. You should be elevating yourself. You should be making sure you're good, you're happy, and you're rich. That's what matters, no matter what it costs anyone else. Christianity will continue to be persecuted, and that won't stop. So it brings the church to a great question mark, or some call it a fork in the road. How do we respond when persecution comes? There have been times in church history where people responded by running away. And and before we get too judgy, it's scary to face torture. It's not something we might look at as doing readily unless the light of our lives is Jesus Christ. On our own, Jesus himself told us not many would lay down their life, or who would lay down their life for a stranger? Maybe you would lay down your life for a friend. But then Jesus invites us to follow him who laid down his life for the broken sinners of this world. And he said, go and do likewise. Go take a risk for me, knowing that your kingdom, your comfort, your life isn't built just on the however many years you have left right now. What you've got left right now, make sure people know who Jesus is. That's what we do with what we've got left in our life. The quote I told you a couple weeks ago, I want to build a life for the next 10 million years, not just for the next 30 or however many I'm going to live. We've got to expect persecution, but then we have to be ready for it and live in a way that draws us to the person of Christ. Well, how would we respond to that? 
Well, if you flip back a few pages in your Bible, I, I quoted it just a few minutes ago, and no doubt Doyle has recently taught on it. The end of James chapter 1 says, true religion is this, that is undefiled, unstained by the world. All of these things that can stain us and distract us from the ways of God. And James, the brother of Jesus, stepbrother, remember, um, said this. He said, true religion that is undefiled by the world is this. First, not to be polluted by the ways of this world. In other words, the world may tell you this is okay, but just because the world says it, there is a higher absolute. And what I mean by absolute, there is a higher way of living, a higher standard of right and wrong than what the world says right now. The world might say it's okay to fudge your taxes. God says, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. God, the world might say a little white lie is probably okay here and there. God says, be people of integrity in all of our dealings. And the list could go on and on. So how do we respond first? We live in this world as examples of what it means to live obedient to the word of God that he has given us through, through this and through how his son Jesus Christ lives. We're charged to live as children of the light, Jesus who is the light. Second, he says, so first, that's an inward thing. That's grow in knowledge and depth of insight. That's growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. That's an inward spiritual transformation that allows us to get through and interpret the times we find ourselves in. So the first thing we do is we respond inwardly. And we were talking about this at our community group last night. But the second part of that is caring for the widows and orphans. Now, that can, in metaphorical terms, that can mean all sorts of different things. How many of you know someone in need right now? Don't raise your hands. Most of you, if you think about it, whether it's an emotional need, a spiritual need, or a physical need, know someone in need. What are you going to do about it? That's what James is asking. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, if you're going to take him seriously and you've been transformed, I've already told you the beginning of James is not really optimistic. Uh, He says you're going to suffer, you're going to be tempted, and it's going to be hard to fight that temptation, but do it. And oh, by the way, just what Jesus said, by this you'll know you are my disciples if you have love for one another and if you obey what I command. And how do we do that? We live that out by caring for Jesus as the least of these. To do that, we have to have open eyes to the world around us. We cannot hide inside the walls of church. I absolutely love you and I want to spend all my time with you but that's not my only calling on my life. Because if it is, I miss the chance to walk with broken people. And by the way, we're broken too. We've just been given the grace of God that transcends understanding and allows us to give that grace away to those that are still living in their brokenness. So we give it away. We look for widows and orphans. Francis Chan in his series that you can find on Right Now Media in the, for the book of James, or you can talk to Doyle about it as well. But Francis Chan says that in America, there's roughly a million churches right now. And there's currently 500,000 children in foster care in state government governed homes where they have no real family. Some are better than others. But he said, what if one family for every two churches cared for one of those orphans? 
Doesn't seem so hard when you look around at all the adults in this room, does it? What about in Hong Kong? There is so much need. Um, Melissa and, and I have prayerfully considered, and, and we hope that someday the Lord, and I'm saying this out loud and you can pray with us, we want to adopt. Not just because we want to have a cute kid and we want more kids. If you've met me, you know I'm good. But because I feel like to be obedient to what God has put forth in his scriptures, there are children that have been abandoned and we can provide a home for them. And God hasn't opened that door yet, so right now it's just a dream. But he, and he may never open that. But the point is we look for ways to obey what God is doing and we follow it. How many of us know widows or people that are now single parents raising kids on their own and we can help? But we're so busy my favorite words. We're so busy. The thing is, if we look at our home and where our home is really to be, we realize that we're building for the future and we're building to welcome others in and to live in a community where people know there is care and there is hope and there is a better way than just the things of this world. Solomon, arguably, uh, according to Scripture, not arguably, the wisest man to ever live, said the pursuits of this world are meaningless. But pursuing God is a worthwhile and eternal venture. And it took Solomon his whole life to figure that out. And sadly, you could rewrite Ecclesiastes as tales of a misspent life when he had all the opportunities. We have tremendous opportunity. We will continue to make make mistakes, I promise you that. But in so doing, can we give away the grace that God has given us? Can we look at the broken world around us and not say, gee, I hope it gets better, but God how would you use me even in the most dangerous of circumstances? Whether that be knocking on my neighbor's door, whether that be having a hard conversation with my family, or whether it be going to some of the most difficult places on earth for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ. I got to talk uh, with uh, a friend and, and, and member of our church on the phone yesterday morning and and earlier in the week as well, and they were telling me about a country they were just in and the, the darkness and the oppression that is there. And, and he made the statement that it just changed or reframed his perspective on the world we find ourselves in. The darkness is around us. And Jesus calls us to live as children of the light. And to do so, that means we have to understand and grasp a very basic principle, that our citizenship is in heaven. We look forward to a new or a holy home a home that is forever. And in so doing, we want to invite other people to live with us in that home. But at the very end of Revelation 21, they said nothing will be able to stain this home. No sin, no defilement, no debauchery. None of this will be allowed in there. Well, you can look at me and you'd say, but Mike, you're a frail guy. You make mistakes all the time. We watch you. And you would be exactly correct. So how in the world can I get up and say that I'm going to be in that home? That's the question on everybody's mind. Well, yeah, the world's broken, but what are we going to do about it? Nothing. That's my answer. 
we can't do anything. That's the greatest news I can possibly give you. We can't do anything on our own. But as you see in your notes, it's already been done for us. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, I believe that's a critical theme of salvation. If you really know me, you will and can know the Father. Jesus, who knew no sin, made himself sin that we might become the righteousness of God. How do we end up worshiping in holiness for all eternity? Because of the very work of Jesus Christ. Because he took his sin upon, he he didn't sin, let me restate that. He took our sin upon himself. And said, all of those struggles, all of those temptations, all of those sins that you've bottled up, that you've carried up, they're mine. I will carry them and I will cleanse you once for all. That you are bathed in the righteousness of God. That your identity as is righteous. Not because of your works, they're worthless but because of what he has done for us. And out of that great revelation, out of that great transformation that has come into our lives, it shapes how we then live in a broken world. We're right back where we started. When we understand the depth of God's sacrifice by giving his own son for us, that we might be the righteousness of God, we should not want anything less than invite others into that righteousness. Two things should scare us as we read through the book of Revelation, and neither of them is the end of the world for us personally. The end of the world for us personally means a new heaven and a new earth where all eternity is as it was created to be. And we're excited about that. Just read the new heaven and the new earth. But what should scare us is the fact that there are those out there that have not yet heard of Jesus Christ or those that have heard and not yet responded. And we're sitting comfortably at home, not doing anything. It should scare us to know that we know people that can be condemned to hell and we're not actively involved in loving them and walking with them through life. It should also scare us to be able to relate to Laodicea. Now, I don't have time to preach through the entire book of Revelation, but in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, we read about a church in Laodicea that was lukewarm. If you don't know what lukewarm is, it's neither hot nor cold. And, you know, in Hong Kong, we either want our water steaming hot or piping cold, depending on where you grew up, right? Well, the church in Laodicea was trying to have the best of everything. They were trying to live in the world and get all of that and call themselves Christians. And God's response to that was pretty graphic. I will vomit you out. You are of no good to me. You never knew me. Jesus says, many will call, call upon my name and I will look at them and say, who are you? Because it's not good enough just to sit in a seat or a pew and go through the motions. He says, if you love me, you can't help but do what I say out of love for me, out of bringing glory to God, out of understanding that your eternity is just getting started. 
and you have the wonderful opportunity to make disciples of all nations and bring forth the end. Bring me back. He invites us into his mission. So how do we wrestle with the book of Revelation when all of this comes together? Pretty simply, we aggressively seek out knowing God's word better so that we can respond to a world in need of hope, in need of salvation, and in need of love. And sometimes that means we can respond to those that might call themselves Christians and show them a better way to live a radically transformed life that is sold out for Jesus Christ. You saw pictures of my team leaders uh, from 17 years ago. For 20 plus years, they have followed God wherever he has led them into some of the most dangerous and difficult situations you can face as a missionary. And they've done so with joy. You know, want to know one of the most joyful people I know? Her name is Joyce and she eats Spiders. Many of you have met her. She's our AGS missionary in the Congo, Africa. And she and Henri exude joyfulness in their lives. They have forsaken all things to go where the Lord led them. She could have been a successful eye doctor in all sorts of places, yet she followed the Lord to Congo, considering it pure joy to make his name great among the nations. How do we respond to the great prostitutes? We let the love of Christ shine through us and invite others to respond to the true light, not the false God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of light, that we would ask this question that's on the board and that you would be first in every area of our life. I know revelation can seem confusing at times, but I ask that we would respond with humility, considering others better than ourselves, with submission, acknowledging you as Lord of every area of our lives and with faithfulness, calling out to all nations that you are Lord and there is no one but you. In your name I pray, amen.